319, Chapter 19. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 319, Twisty. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, hi there for those of you listening in real time. Apologies all around for having missed last week. That gainful employment thing is kind of pesky and, and it is continuing and depending on how the deadlines go, uh, well, whither goest the deadlines, goest I, is, I think, what it comes down to. Uh, nonetheless, we are back, we are here, we have book two, chapter 19 of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, and a couple of newsy tidbits that should be up your alley. Uh, Kenna wrote in and said uh, that we are probably the only people she knows who would appreciate this. There was a New Yorker blog shout called Great Books, Modern Subtitles. It is a very funny page. I am linking to it from the show notes so that you can go and enjoy that with me and with Kenna. I'm, uh, I was giggling when I read it. So that's kind of a good sign. I liked that. The other thing is my book is out. My book is indeed out and starting to gather some very nice reviews on Amazon. Thank you. Because in this modern age, you know, aside from purchasing the book, which is marvelous and lovely, and thank you. The uh, other thing that turns out to be really important is getting reviews on Amazon. It's shocking how important that has turned out to be. And I don't know how I feel about that, but there it is. The good reviews, if I can edit them down into little blurby things, I am putting them on the groundedseries.com slash updates website, which you can get to from the show notes as well. But uh, because it's me, and because life is fraught, and uh, occasionally amusing, I had an epic fail, which is part of why there was no podcast last week. I, I have an online store, craftingalife.com slash shop. And the online store is run by a WordPress e-commerce plugin. This is often uh, abbreviated to WP, WordPress, EC, e-commerce. If anyone knows of a better way to get a store up and running on the internet without spending a fortune or a whole lot more time, please let me know because the epic fail that was that plugin uh, cost me two days. I, uh, I 
got everything organized on Monday. I thought I was so ahead of the game. I was going to start shipping the books out, the the digital copies of the books out first thing Tuesday morning. And then I, I noticed a problem. So it took another couple hours to fix that. And then, <laughs> and then I went in and I had already sorted all of the books in the, the little comma delimited uh, tally sheet, you know, the, the little report that you can download that says, you know, who bought what book and what their email address is and what their shipping address is and all of that. And I sent a lot, a really a lot of digital copies of the book out to the people who purchased it. And within, no joke, 30 seconds, I started getting emails back saying, wow, thank you. I didn't order this. And so I checked and I went back and I looked at my records and my records were correct. And then I, I went back because I was nervous and I looked at the raw file, unsorted, the file that I never touched. And, and that said I was correct. So I went back into the shop online and I went through receipt by receipt and found that all but 8% of what came out on that Excel spreadsheet was incorrect. That's right. That's a whopping 92% wrong. So I quickly scrambled. I went through each and every receipt from every sale in my store, and I found the people who had actually purchased the book, sent them a a little apology email and links to the book. And uh, I've continued to get really nice emails from people saying, wow, this is great. Um, I didn't buy it. I meant to buy it, but I forgot to. So this is wonderful. Thank you. And a lot of these people have made donations and, and just been really wonderful about it. Nobody has been mean to me about it at all. But but one of the people who I wrote and apologized to after she sent, wow, I, I think I got this in error. I wrote back and told her that it was an epic feel, fail and to, to enjoy the book because I, I screwed up and that's that's my screw up and, uh, and enjoy the book. I decided to look at it as just doing something nice for people because life is difficult. And why shouldn't everybody get a little bonus every once in a while, right? So she wrote back, this is Melanie, and she said, one of the most profound things I think I've ever come across, and I'm going to read this to you the way she wrote it to me, because for any of you who have had these days where things really go epically wrong, I think this is worth keeping in mind. Melanie wrote, I have had these moments in my life, and I have found that people that live very full, very creative, very connected lives are apt to have these moments. I remind myself of this when an epic fail comes my way, while other friends who live more sedate lives wonder why I encounter so much drama all the time. It's somewhat of a comfort to know that the fail is so epic because the effort is so epic, and that it wasn't your personal epic fail, but an epic fail that came your way because you took a huge risk and actually followed through on your dream. Right? Isn't that a lovely way to spin it? I swore to her I'm going to tattoo that to my eyelids. I mean, that is just, wow. That is such a lovely thing to say to someone in the middle of (laughs) complete and utter panic attack meltdown time. So uh, I pass that on to you. I pass Melanie's words of wisdom and kindness on to you and hope that you remember that on days when you have epic fails. Not that I hope you have an epic fail, but that if you do, because you are all creative and interesting and wonderful people too. 
it's, you know, something good to remember. And then I had a couple of other things to announce. One, uh, Cal Trevis, who is a listener, wrote to let us know that her book, The Book of Seven, ha, huh, great minds, right? It is uh, on sale right now via Lulu. And I will read you the blurb. Enter a world far different to our own, where magic is commonplace and humans live in comparative peace with its users and with a host of demons. Not all such beings are benevolent, however, and a small number of warriors keep the darkness at bay. A great and terrible alliance is rising, and it is down to two such warriors to quell it. If the courage in their hearts is as great as the love that they have for each other, they will triumph. If they do not, then the world shall fall. The Book of Seven by Cal Travis. I'm afraid we're going to miss this uh, one day. It's going to be free on October 10th. I will tweet about it and uh, Facebook about it and hope that that will make up for this getting into the show notes too late. But nonetheless, you can go and download the book for yourself and uh, and have a good read. So that's one thing for you. And another is that we got an email from Kenneth. Hello, Kenneth. Man. Man listening. We love this. Uh, he and his daughter, Kristen, who just turned 10, have a brand spanking new cool website. For those of you who have children, or who wind up having children dumped upon you from time to time, this is a website for you. MagicTricksForKids.org They are recording how-to videos and showing them on their website. I'm so excited by this whole idea. And I haven't had a chance to show my kids the homework and the drama, but I can tell because I went and I looked at the website that this is exactly up their alley and, and what they will uh, love and enjoy. And I hope your kids do too, because it's a Craftlet listener. Yay! So congratulations, Kenneth and Kristen. And I hope that the launch of your site went really well. And I hope that lots and lots of people come and take a look at what you're doing because it sounds awesome. And then finally, I wanted to talk seriously now about sweet and simple baby crochet. I know. <laughs> How serious can that be? It's very serious. And it's very serious, actually, for a couple of reasons. One, I think even if you don't like babies, you will find the babies in this book to be so unbelievably adorable and cute that it's, it's almost too much. It's almost too much to bear. But the second thing is this is the first time I have ever seen that I can remember eyelash yarn used in a way that makes sense. It's really well used here. And the picture, it's for a, I've got the book here. Can you hear it? It's for a mossy baby pod. And I tell you, the picture is to die for. It is dreamy. It's how I wish I slept at night. It's very, you know, actually it's very midsummer dreamy, midsummer's night dreamy to me. Uh, yeah, I really like that picture. The other thing that I find really interesting about this crochet book is there is a pattern for uh, socket to me baby socks and they are crocheted socks that are constructed to have the same uh, anatomy, the same physical features as a knitted sock. There's a, what looks like a heel flap and it, it seems to be a fairly standard construction, but it's all done in crochet. And I have a sneaking suspicion that those suckers would have stayed on my children's feet much better than the little crocheted booties that I made them. 
So that's kind of cool too. There's also, there's a baby shrug for little girls. There's some adorable hats. And it's the first time that I, I can actually say as adorable as the picture on the cover is, there are other pictures inside that I like even more better, and they are marvelous. They are marvelous. It's a very pretty book. 35 designs. So this is going to be our uh, giveaway, our raffle copter giveaway. So follow the link on the show notes and go to the giveaway page and sign up to win your free copy of Sweet and Simple Baby Crochet. And the last little tidbit, why is this episode named Twisty? It is named Twisty because I am working on the very last of the grounded socks. Every other sock is out in either a test knitter or a sample knitter's hands. And the last one is one that I'm doing and it's heavily cabled and it's going to kill me. It's gorgeous. It's really, uh, I think it's the prettiest sock I've ever made, but it's going to kill me. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling very twisty. I'm feeling very twisted up. And I'm, I'm hoping that the twistiness of the sock will stop making me crazy. But uh, lovely, lovely, lovely socks that we have going out for the Grounded book, which you can find more about on the show notes. But now we must get to the Age of Innocence. Because, oh my goodness, Newland Archer. Newland. Oh, Newland. He had, what, less than a month until he got married? And so where is today going to pick up? That's right, it's book two. It is going to pick up with the wedding. You already knew that, right? Edith Wharton, I think, outdoes herself in this chapter on on a number of levels. One, Edith Wharton did not have the happiest marriage. Uh, There are lots of reasons why she wound up going to France. Uh, Unhappily married, her husband was not okay, and she wound up having... uh, a very uh, serious affair with uh, a friend of hers uh, as a you know as an adult she'd been married for a, a long time and it it wasn't working out and and so you can kind of see how her sympathy with Newland and Ellen's plight might be uh, extremely raw and painful for her, but I suppose also kind of cathartic to write this book and to allow it to be Newland who is telling the story and not Ellen, which is probably closer to, to what her, her story would have been. But nonetheless, in this chapter, she pulls out all the stops and shows us what an upper class wedding in New York at Grace Church, um, which is on Broadway at 10th Street. It's still there. I've linked to all of this from the show notes, so you can uh, you can go find pictures. You can even listen to the music that gets mentioned. It's all it's all in the show notes. Uh, Grace Church is still there. It's lovely. Of course, if you recall, Mrs. Manson Mingott lives up by the great wilderness known as the Central Park. Everybody else is down around Gramercy Park, which is tenth, tenth, twelfth, fourteenth, somewhere around there uh, on the east side of Broadway. So. I always think that's kind of cool that you can go and see these places that she writes about because they were they were real. And I'm positive that the way that she describes <laughs> the people <laughs> is really quite accurate. And, and the descriptions are marvelous. And she talks about the flowers and she talks about the furs and she talks about the frock coats and she talks about Handel's March and all of these 
all of these marvelous things that make up uh, an important wedding for an important family. There is a, a point where there's a discussion about Mrs. Manson Mingott coming to the wedding. And I will just tell you, I have linked to a page with a picture and a description of a bath chair, because it, it may not make any sense to you why it works out the way that it does, unless you see one of these contraptions. Um, they're pretty impressive, actually. And I'm trying to remember, there was a there was a story that I read as a little girl. It was a picture book that had somebody, it must have been a British picture book, somebody going down to the sea... There was saltwater taffy. It was a duck. It was a duck or a goose. And there was somebody in a bath chair and it gets overturned in the water. Maybe it was supposed to be New Jersey in the boardwalk. I actually don't remember. But I know there was a bath chair. Because I, I, I recognized the picture of the bath chair. It kind of all came rushing back to me when I looked at it. So I don't know what that children's book was. Wow. I wonder if my mom knows. I'll have, to, I'll have to hunt mom down and, and ask her. Uh, Chantilly. Chantilly Lace. Not the song, but it's going through your head now, isn't it? It's been going through my head since I read the chapter. Chantilly Lace. I have a link to pictures of. It is gorgeous. Uh, Parma Violets. I have linked to. And for those of you who are not Episcopalian, uh, there's a lot of discussion, description, commentary about the various people who work in and at the church showing up and doing their jobs. So I have linked to definitions of who these people are because not everybody's Episcopalian or Catholic or knows what a sexton is, uh, unless you spend a lot of time reading, you know, Jane Austen novels and things like that. At one point, she describes that through the open doors, you can see Mrs. Wellen's chestnuts. Those are not nuts hanging like mistletoe from the doorway those are the horses that you can see through the open door that are down on the street and uh and of course they're all decked out for the wedding too they have big white ribbons on them and then all of the knitters who are listening to just the books or craftlet prepare yourself to go squee because mecca the mecca for knitters is mentioned rhinebeck rhinebeck is mentioned in this chapter again but this time we get a little bit more detail about the whole Rhinebeck thing. And we have a, a listener who wrote in, uh, back on episode 315, wrote a comment in the show notes saying that she lives in the Hudson River Valley and uh, is familiar with Edith Wharton and Edith Wharton's history there. Now, you may be familiar with a statement, keeping up with the Joneses. Well, Edith Wharton was related to the Joneses of the keeping up with people. Uh, they had a home in Rhinebeck. The estate is still there, but it is in bad shape. And I have linked to a really, truly tragic page that starts with pictures of it looking whole and complete. And then as you scroll through, you can see just the decay. It's just awful. Uh, and that, that place was called Windcliffe, and that's, that's where the Joneses lived. And um, so Edith Wharton, as I mentioned, she spent some time in with a family in and around the Hudson River Valley, also up near Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, her family's estate is up there as well. But for those of you who are knitters, if you are interested when you are in New York this weekend, because I think this weekend, right, is Rhinebeck, um, take a drive down River Road 
and you'll get to see some of these old mansions. And, uh, and oh my, there's a book, a picture book. I may have mentioned it seven or eight years ago on the podcast. I think it's called Phantoms of the Hudson River or Phantoms of the Hudson River Valley. Anyway, it's all these old abandoned mansions. And one of them is a, a castle. It's an actual, honest to goodness, stone castle. Some guy went to Scotland and said, wow, I want one of those. Came back to the Hudson and built one on the banks of the river. And it has been progressively sinking <laughs> ever since it was abandoned uh, many years ago. And I, I think I think during Prohibition, one of his sons accidentally blew up part of the foundation. I can't remember it was drama, lots of drama. But the castle is still there. And if you go up on the train and you're paying attention, you can see it when you go by. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff, not just Rip Van Winkle. Lots of interesting stuff there, including Edith Wharton and the Joneses. And that is pretty much all you need to know about that before we listen to the chapter. So here we go. Please enjoy Brenda Dane reading chapter 19 of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Book Two, Chapter 19 The day was fresh, with a lively spring wind full of dust. All the old ladies in both families had got out their faded sables and yellowing ermines, and the smell of camphor from the front pews almost smothered the faint spring scent of the lilies banking the altar. Newland Archer, at a signal from the sexton, had come out of the vestry and placed himself with his best man on the chancel step of Grace Church. The signal meant that the broom bearing the bride and her father was in sight, but there was sure to be a considerable interval of adjustment and consultation in the lobby, where the bridesmaids were already hovering like a cluster of Easter blossoms. During this unavoidable lapse of time, the bridegroom, in proof of his eagerness, was expected to expose himself alone to the gaze of the assembled company, and Archer had gone through this formality as resignedly as through all the others which made of a 19th-century New York wedding a rite that seemed to belong to the dawn of history. Everything was equally easy, or equally painful, as one chose to put it, in the path he was committed to tread, and he had obeyed the flurried instructions of his best man as piously as other bridegrooms had obeyed his own in the days when he had guided them through the same labyrinth. So far, he was reasonably sure of having fulfilled all his obligations. The bridesmaids ate bouquets of white lilac and lily of the valley, had been sent in due time, as well as the gold and sapphire sleeve links of the eight ushers and the best man's cat's-eye scarf-pin. Archer had sat up half the night, trying to vary the wording of his thanks for the last batch of presents from men-friends and ex-lady-loves. The fees for the bishop and rector were safely in the pocket of his best man. His own luggage was already at Mrs. Manson Mingott's, where the wedding breakfast was to take place, and so were the traveling clothes, into which he was to change. And a private compartment had been engaged in the train that was to carry the young couple to their unknown destination, concealment of the spot in which the bridal night was to be spent being one of the most sacred taboos 
of the prehistoric ritual. Got the ring all right, whispered young van der Leuyden Newland, who was inexperienced in the duties of a best man and awed by the weight of his responsibility. Archer made the gesture which he had seen so many bridegrooms make. With his ungloved right hand, he felt in the pocket of his dark gray waistcoat and assured himself that the little gold circlet engraved inside Newland to May, April 1870, was in its place. Then, resuming his former attitude, his tall hat and pearl-gray gloves with black stitching grasped in his left hand, he stood looking at the door of the church. Overhead, Handel's march swelled pompously through the imitation stone vaulting, carrying on its waves the faded drift of the many weddings at which, with cheerful indifference, he had stood on the same chancel step, watching other brides float up the nave towards other bridegrooms. How like a first night at the opera, he thought, recognizing all the same faces in all the same boxes, no, pews, and wondering if, when the last trump sounded, Mrs. Selfridge Mary would be there with the same towering ostrich feathers in her bonnet, and Mrs. Beaufort with the same diamond earrings and the same smile, and whether suitable proscenium seats were already prepared for them in another world. After that, there was still time to review, one by one, the familiar countenances in the first rows. The women's, sharp with curiosity and excitement, the men's, sulky with the obligation of having to put on their frock coats before luncheon and fight for food at the wedding breakfast. "'Too bad the breakfast is at old Catherine's,' the bridegroom could fancy Reggie Chivers saying." but I'm told that Lovell Mingott insisted on its being cooked by his own chef, so it ought to be good if one can only get at it. And he could imagine Sillerton Jackson adding with authority, My dear fellow, haven't you heard? It's to be served at small tables, in the new English fashion. Archer's eyes lingered a moment on the left-hand pew, where his mother who had entered the church on Mr. Henry van der Luyden's arm, sat weeping softly under her chantilly veil, her hands in her grandmother's ermine muff. Poor Janey, he thought, looking at his sister. Even by screwing her head around, she can only see the people in the few front pews, and they're mostly dowdy Newlands and Dagonettes. On the hither side of the white ribbon, dividing off the seats reserved for the families, he saw Beaufort, tall and red-faced, scrutinizing the women with his arrogant stare. Beside him sat his wife, all silvery chinchilla and violets, and on the far side of the ribbon, Lawrence Leffertz's sleekly brushed head seemed to mount guard over the invisible deity of good form who presided at the ceremony. Archer wondered how many flaws Leffertz's keen eyes would discover in the ritual of his divinity. Then he suddenly recalled that he, too, had once thought such questions important. The things that filled his day seemed now like a nursery parody of life, 
or like the wrangles of medieval schoolmen over metaphysical terms that nobody had ever understood. A stormy discussion as to whether the wedding presents should be shown had darkened the last hours before the wedding, and it seemed inconceivable to Archer that grown-up people should work themselves into a state of agitation over such trifles, and that the matter should have been decided, in the negative, by Mrs. Welland saying with indignant tears, I should as soon turn the reporters loose in my house. Yet there was a time when Archer had definite and rather aggressive opinions on all such problems, and when everything concerning the manners and customs of his little tribe had seemed to him fraught with worldwide significance. And all the while, I suppose, he thought, real people were living somewhere and real things happening to them. There they come, breathed the best man excitedly, but the bridegroom knew better. The cautious opening of the door of the church meant only that Mr. Brown, the livery stable keeper, gowned in black in his intermittent character of sexton, was taking a preliminary survey of the scene before marshalling in his forces. The door was softly shut again. Then, after another interval, it swung majestically open, and a murmur ran through the church. The family. Mrs. Welland came first, on the arm of her eldest son. Her large pink face was appropriately solemn, and her plume-colored satin with pale blue side panels and blue ostrich plumes in a small satin bonnet met with general approval. But before she had settled herself with a stately rustle in the pew opposite Mrs. Archer's, the spectators were craning their necks to see who was coming after her. Wild rumors had been abroad the day before to the effect that Mrs. Manson Mingott, in spite of her physical disabilities, had resolved on being present at the ceremony, and the idea was so much in keeping with her sporting character that bets ran high at the clubs as to her being able to walk up the nave and squeeze into a seat. It was known that she had insisted on sending her own carpenter to look into the possibility of taking down the end panel of the front pew and to measure the space between the seat and the front. But the result had been discouraging, and for one anxious day her family had watched her dallying with the plan of being wheeled up to the nave in her enormous bath chair and sitting enthroned in it at the foot of the chancel. The idea of this monstrous exposure of her person was so painful to her relations that they could have covered with gold the ingenious person who suddenly discovered that the chair was too wide to pass between the iron uprights of the awning which extended from the church door to the curbstone. The idea of doing away with this awning and revealing the bride to the mob of dressmakers and newspaper reporters who stood outside, fighting to get near the joints of the canvas, exceeded even old Catherine's courage, though for a moment she had weighed the possibility. Why, they might take a photograph of my child and put it in the papers! Mrs. Welland exclaimed when her mother's last plan was hinted to her.
and from this unthinkable indecency the clan recoiled with a collective shudder. The ancestress had had to give in, but her concession was bought only by the promise that the wedding breakfast should take place under her roof, though, as the Washington Square connection said, with the Wellens' house in easy reach, it was hard to have to make a special price with Brown to drive one to the other end of nowhere. Though all these transactions had been widely reported by the Jacksons, a sporting minority still clung to the belief that old Catherine would appear in church, and there was a distinct lowering of the temperature when she was found to have been replaced by her daughter-in-law. Mrs. Lovell Mingott had the high color and glassy stare induced in ladies of her age and habit by the effort of getting into a new dress. But once the disappointment occasioned by her mother-in-law's non-appearance had subsided, it was agreed that her black chantilly over lilac satin, with a bonnet of Parma violets, formed the happiest contrast to Mrs. Wellen's blue and plum color. Far different was the impression produced by the gaunt and mincing lady who followed on Mr. Mingott's arm in a wild dishevelment of stripes and fringes and floating scarves. And, as this apparition glided into view, Archer's heart contracted and stopped beating. He had taken it for granted that the Marchioness Manson was still in Washington, where she had gone some four weeks previously with her niece, Madame Olenska. It was generally understood that their abrupt departure was due to Madame Olenska's desire to remove her aunt from the baleful eloquence of Dr. Agathon Carver, who had nearly succeeded in enlisting her as a recruit for the Valley of Love. And in the circumstances, no one had expected either of the ladies to return for the wedding. For a moment, Archer stood with his eyes fixed on Medora's fantastic figure, straining to see who came behind her. But the little procession was at an end, for all the lesser members of the family had taken their seats, and the eight tall ushers, gathering themselves together like birds or insects, preparing for some migratory maneuver, were already slipping through the side doors into the lobby. Newland, I say, she's here, the best man whispered. Archer roused himself with a start. A long time had apparently passed since his heart had stopped beating, for the white and rosy procession was in fact halfway up the nave. The bishop, the rector, and two white-winged assistants were hovering about the flower-banked altar, and the first chords of the Spore Symphony were strewing their flower-like notes before the bride. Archer opened his eyes, but could they really have been shut, as he imagined? And he felt his heart beginning to resume its usual task. The music, the scent of the lilies on the altar, the vision of the cloud of tulle and orange blossoms floating nearer and nearer, the sight of Mrs. Archer's face suddenly convulsed with happy sobs, the low benedictory murmur of the rector's voice, 
the ordered evolutions of the eight pink bridesmaids and the eight black ushers. All of these sights, sounds, and sensations, so familiar in themselves, so unutterably strange and meaningless in his new relation to them, were confusedly mingled in his brain. My God, he thought, have I got the ring? And once more he went through the bridegroom's convulsive gesture. Then, in a moment, May was beside him, such radiance streaming from her that it sent faint warmth through his numbness, and he straightened himself and smiled into her eyes. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here, the rector began. The ring was on her hand. The bishop's benediction had been given. The bridesmaids were apoised to resume their place in the procession, and the organ was showing preliminary symptoms of breaking out into the Mendelssohn march, without which no newly wedded couple had ever emerged upon New York. "'Your arm, I say, give her your arm!' young Newland nervously hissed. And once more Archer became aware of having been adrift, far off in the unknown. What was it that had sent him there, he wondered. Perhaps the glimpse, among the anonymous spectators in the transept, of a dark coil of hair, under a hat which, a moment later, revealed itself as belonging to an unknown lady with a long nose, so laughably unlike the person whose image she had evoked that he asked himself if he were becoming subject to hallucinations. And now he and his wife were pacing slowly down the nave, carried forward on the light Mendelssohn ripples, the spring day beckoning to them through widely opened doors, and Mrs. Welland's chestnuts with big white favors on their frontlets, curvetting and showing off at the far end of the canvas tunnel. The footman, who had a still bigger white favor on his lapel, wrapped May's white cloak about her, and Archer jumped into the broom at her side. She turned to him with a triumphant smile, and their hands clasped under her veil. Darling, Archer said, and suddenly the same black abyss yawned before him, and he felt himself sinking into it deeper and deeper, while his voice rambled on smoothly and cheerfully, Yes, of course I thought I'd lost the ring. No wedding would be complete if the poor devil of a bridegroom didn't go through that. But you did keep me waiting, you know. I had time to think of every horror that might possibly happen. She surprised him by turning in full Fifth Avenue and flinging her arms about his neck. But none ever can happen now, can it, Newland, as long as we two are together. Every detail of the day had been so carefully thought out that the young couple, after the wedding breakfast, had ample time to put on their traveling clothes, descend the wide mingot stairs between laughing bridesmaids and weeping parents, and get into the broom under the traditional shower of rice and satin slippers. And there was still half an hour left in which to drive to the station, buy the last weeklies at the bookstall, 
with the air of seasoned travelers, and settle themselves in the reserved compartment in which May's maid had already placed her dove-colored traveling cloak and glaringly new dressing-bag from London. The old Dulac aunts at Rhinebeck had put their house at the disposal of the bridal couple, with a readiness inspired by the prospect of spending a week in New York with Mrs. Archer. And Archer, glad to escape the usual bridal suite in a Philadelphia or Baltimore hotel, had accepted with an equal alacrity. May was enchanted at the idea of going to the country and childishly amused at the vain efforts of the eight bridesmaids to discover where their mysterious retreat was situated. It was thought very English to have a country house lent to one, and the fact gave a last touch of distinction to what was generally conceded to be the most brilliant wedding of the year. But where the house was, no one was permitted to know except the parents of bride and groom who, when taxed with the knowledge, pursed their lips and said mysteriously, "'Oh, they didn't tell us,' which was manifestly true, since there was no need to. Once they were settled into their compartment and the train, shaking off the endless wooden suburbs, had pushed out into the pale landscape of spring— Talk became easier than Archer had expected. May was still, in look and tone, the simple girl of yesterday, eager to compare notes with him as to the incidents of the wedding, and discussing them as impartially as a bridesmaid talking it all over with an usher. At first, Archer had fancied that this detachment was the disguise of an inward tremor. But her clear eyes revealed only the most tranquil unawareness. She was alone for the first time with her husband. But her husband was only the charming comrade of yesterday. There was no one whom she liked as much, no one whom she trusted as completely, and the culminating lark of the whole delightful adventure of engagement and marriage was to be off with him alone on a journey like a grown-up person, like a married woman, in fact. It was wonderful that, as he had learned in the mission garden at St. Augustine, such depths of feeling could coexist with such absence of imagination. But he remembered how, even then, she had surprised him by dropping back to inexpressive girlishness as soon as her conscience had been eased of its burden and he saw that she would probably go through life dealing to the best of her ability with each experience as it came, but never anticipating any by so much as a stolen glance. Perhaps that faculty of unawareness was what gave her eyes their transparency, and her face the look of representing a type rather than a person, as if she might have been chosen to pose for a civic virtue or a Greek goddess. The blood that ran so close to her fair skin might have been a preserving fluid rather than a ravaging element. Yet her look of indestructible youthfulness made her seem neither hard nor dull, but only primitive and pure. 
In the thick of this meditation, Archer suddenly felt himself looking at her with the startled gaze of a stranger, and plunged into a reminiscence of the wedding breakfast and of Granny Mingott's immense and triumphant pervasion of it. May settled down to frank enjoyment of the subject. I was surprised, though, weren't you, that Aunt Medora came after all? Ellen wrote that they were neither of them well enough to take the journey. I do wish it had been she who had recovered. Did you see the exquisite old lace she sent me? He had known that the moment must come sooner or later, but he had somewhat imagined that by force of willing he might hold it at bay. Yes, I... No, it was beautiful, he said, looking at her blindly and wondering if, whenever he heard those two syllables, all his carefully built-up world would tumble about him like a house of cards. Aren't you tired? It will be good to have some tea when we arrive. I'm sure the ants have got everything beautifully ready, he rattled on, taking her hand in his, and her mind rushed away instantly to the magnificent tea and coffee service of Baltimore silver which the Beauforts had sent, and which went so perfectly with Uncle Lovell Mingott's trays and side dishes. In the spring twilight, the train stopped at the Rhinebeck station, and they walked along the platform to the waiting carriage. Oh, how awfully kind of the Vanderloydens! They've sent their man over from Scoitercliff to meet us, Archer exclaimed, as a sedate person out of livery approached them and relieved the maid of her bags. I'm extremely sorry, sir, said this emissary, that a little accident has occurred at the Miss Dulac's, a leak in the water tank. It happened yesterday, and Mr. Vanderloyden, who heard of it this morning, sent a housemaid up by the early train to get the patroon's house ready. It will be quite comfortable, I think you'll find, sir, and the Miss Dulacs have sent their cook over, so that it will be exactly the same as if you'd been at Rhinebeck. Archer stared at the speaker so blankly that he repeated, in still more apologetic accents, It'll be exactly the same, sir, I do assure you. And May's eager voice broke out, covering the embarrassed silence. The same as Rhinebeck, the patroon's house, but it will be a hundred thousand times better, won't it, Newland? It's too dear and kind of Mr. Vanderloyden to have thought of it. And as they drove off, with the maid beside the coachman, and their shining bridal bags on the seat before them, she went on excitedly. Only fancy, I've never been inside it, have you? The Vanderloydens show it to so few people. But they opened it for Ellen, it seems, and she told me what a darling little place it was. She says it's the only house she's seen in America that she could imagine being perfectly happy in. Well, that's what we're going to be, isn't it? cried her husband gaily, and she answered with her boyish smile. Oh, it's just our luck beginning, the wonderful luck we are always going to have together. End of chapter 19 Do you think Newland sounds a little forced there at the end? Oi. Now, I have to... Mm, the wedding thing, and Newland's kind of coming in and out of noticing where he is and what he's doing. Uh, it, it would be easy to attribute that to just Ellen, but there is, I don't know, for those of you who've gone through any kind of a, a 
big ceremony, whether, whether it's signing a mortgage or getting married. I, I don't know. Did you have that moment of kind of disorientation? I remember it wasn't the day of the wedding. It was the next day after we had breakfast with everyone and we said goodbye and we, we drove off to go to, to Bisbee, Arizona, to Bisbee land to uh, have a couple days because I had to get back to, to teaching. And I remember at lunch that day, looking at my husband, who I love deeply and always wanted to marry. And I remember having this moment of looking at him going, oh my God, what have I done? Because there are a few things that feel that irrevocable. Mortgages <laughs> and marriage, two M words. It's, I don't know if I can chalk all of it up to Newland's conflicted feelings, but certainly some of it feels like it has to do with Newland's conflicted feelings. And I loved Newland's comparison of the ritual of marriage and the pomp and circumstance to A Night at the Opera. That it's, it's all for show, it's all a performance, and it means about as much to him. I just, oh, it hurts, doesn't it? Oh, and May is so happy. Happy, happy. Happy May. So on that note, we wait until next week to find out what happens to them. Have a great one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just hyphen, the hyphen, books.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly